I'm Josh Block, sitting in this week for Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Josh. Ross, it was a long meeting last night. Seven hours, maybe? Well, it's also been a long time since we've had a meeting, Josh. So we've been off for quite a few weeks, no school committee meetings. And last night was a long meeting. We started with a budget hearing at five o'clock, five to six o'clock. And then the meeting lasted from there another almost six hours. So it was chock full. And we'll get into these issues, Josh. But first, let's start off with the superintendent's report, where the superintendent spent a significant amount of time and her team spent a significant amount of time talking about the new organization chart for BPS. I think the org chart speaks to, you know, equity as a through line of our work and certainly the heart of our mission. There is a lot of work as a district that we must do. And we know that having an organizational structure is really necessary to help us streamline all of the work and decision making. Yeah, so Ross, one thing that struck me in this chart is a lot of new chief positions. I think it was 15 different chiefs. Yes, Josh. On the org chart, which we'll post on our blog, we have 15 chiefs, we have three deputies, and then we have an untold amount of assistant superintendents. Not really clear about how many assistant superintendents there are in the system. And also, there, there were some questions asked of the superintendent last night about this org chart, how many positions have been added to the org chart, how much they cost. There was no answers for that. The superintendent may provide them at a future date, but she did say that there are more chiefs than there have been in the past. Now, it makes sense that a new superintendent would want to come in, build a new leadership team, build a new structure that would allow her to implement on her goals. Totally, Josh. Every superintendent does this, right? Like you start new in a school system and you think about the right organization for you and your team. And there's no right answer to this, Josh, right? Like the right answer is how do you deliver effective services to support the work that is happening in schools? So the most important things that are happening in our school system are in our schools every day. They're in our classrooms every day. And the central office should be designed around supporting what's happening in those schools. So we'll have to withhold judgment, Josh, on this organizational chart until we see it function. But I think in this podcast, we can give a couple of examples of how we hope it would function going forward. So, Ross, there were three reports last night, three pretty significant reports, and we'll get into each of those. But first, there was a a public comment period that included a lot of very difficult testimony from parents. I think the majority of the families we heard from were Spanish speakers, and they were asking for more bilingual opportunities for their students. And a couple of the families were saying, you know, we've never even been given a choice about where our child can go to school. We've always been assigned programmatically to a school. And so these families were saying, look, just because our child speaks a language other than English, we should still have the same choice as other families. We should still be able to send our kids to the school close to home or wherever they choose. And we need more bilingual programs across our city. And Josh, we also heard quite concerning testimony from Again, families from the Sumner School and the Philbrick, which is a little bit exhausting because this issue comes up over and over and over again. And just when you think it's been resolved, it hasn't. And there's still families that are quite upset about the level of engagement into the merger between the Philbrick and the Sumner community into the Irving School. Why are you rushing? We can only assume that you chose our schools because you thought we would make trouble and you thought we wouldn't speak up. However, you could do these mergers thoughtfully and thoroughly, and our school communities would benefit from being held harmless while this work is done. Now, Josh, this is in particular, let's go back to the org chart for a second. There is a new deputy of engagement, 
And there's, I believe, three or four chiefs under that deputy that are in charge of making sure that the, there's family engagement and community engagement and decision-making. And it doesn't seem like this org chart's in effect yet, because if it was in full effect, we hopefully wouldn't be having this problem where families are coming to school committee saying we have not been engaged, like we've been left out of this process. So hopefully, if this org chart works, we will not see more and more families come out and say, you're not listening to us, you're not engaging us. You know, we heard yesterday again that families were just bought out on a tour right before the meeting yesterday, right? So like, it seems like this is the same old, same old where BPS forgets to engage families until the last minute. When they hear they're coming to school committee, they say, hey, do you want to go on a tour? And we'll make, we'll make sure we listen to you. And now Ross, there's supposed to be this, this big comprehensive Green New Deal planning process. And we'll talk more about this later. But the vision behind that process is one unified comprehensive vision for all of these different school communities. And yet we keep hearing these one-off situations where BPS leadership is meeting with one school community to put out one fire at a time as parents get concerned that they're not getting the information they need. Totally, Josh. And until there is a true plan that is considered of multiple school communities and the system as a whole, we're going to run into this situation over and over again. And we'll get to this at the end of our podcast because there is a new school proposal. And we'll sort of talk about who's left out of that and who's included in that. And Josh, we also heard a number of comments from community members at the Henderson Inclusion School. My testimony today is regarding the systematic dismantling of inclusion at the Henderson Inclusion School, particularly at a time when there is a district-wide move for all schools to be in inclusion. And what we heard there, Josh, was a couple of issues. First, the level of services that students are receiving, the model of the school. You know, the Henderson has been a school that has always been a, a fully inclusive school, a school that has a co-teaching model where there's two teachers in every classroom supported by paraprofessionals. And those teachers, one teacher has a general education license and the other teacher has a special education license. And it sounds like there are families in that school that are concerned that that model is being threatened. It was also raised that there's potentially you know, a quarter of the teachers in that school are not operating with a appropriate license or, or have a special education license, which was highly concerning. And generally, ju we just heard concerns about the overall culture of the Henderson School. This is something that we should be paying attention to, to listening to, and to supporting as much as possible. Because in, in fact, we can improve inclusive practices around our entire district if we're not paying close attention to one of the most successful schools for students with disabilities in our district, the Henderson School. So let's get into the reports from last night. So the first report last night, the biggest report of the night, is the revised budget from the superintendent. So as a reminder, the superintendent put out her proposed budget at the beginning of February. Over the last month, there were two different budget hearings, and then a third last night before the school committee meeting. And then at last night's meeting, we heard the updated budget from Superintendent Skipper. Right, Josh. So not a lot of big changes here from the original budget that was proposed a few months ago by the superintendent. So it's a $1.4 billion budget, and that it does not include the federal dollars, the ESSER dollars, if you will. So it's $1.4 billion in just operating budget. The biggest change from the proposed budget in February is that there's more money for union contracts. So the collective bargaining agreements, which have been settled, they actually increased the budget slightly by a few millions of dollars to take care of those collective bargaining contract costs. But otherwise, Josh, there's really no other major changes. Everything's pretty much as is. There's still a significant increase in central office positions being proposed. There's still a about for 95 of our schools or so, they're still hold harmless in place, meaning that 
there are not full classrooms or not full schools, but the schools will essentially get a soft landing to allow them to stay open and to stay operating at a really pretty much inefficient level. What we heard last night from school committee members was their concern that this year's budget, while not, you know, not cutting schools, adding central office positions, so we haven't heard a whole lot of school communities coming out saying we're not getting what we need. We haven't heard from central departments saying we're not getting what we need because it is. Everyone's getting more money. But what everyone's most concerned about is the future, Josh. And Ross, the crux of the issue here and something that came up repeatedly over these budget hearings in the past month is the fact that the budget continues to increase year after year, and yet enrollment continues to decrease year after year, with enrollment projected to continue decreasing in future years. And actually, member Brandon Cardet Hernandez made this point in one of his questions, noting that we know the reality is we're going to need to right-size the district, and yet we're not preparing for that in this budget. Here's what he said. You know, we in many ways don't have the workforce to operationalize the system the way it is currently designed. That's what happens when you have all of these vacancies. And obviously, which we've talked about sort of at nauseum without a clear plan, but like we are operating too many schools, which I think also leads to why we're unable to fill all of the vacancies and run the system at scale. Right, Josh. We There's a number of concerns here. One, the district is proposing to add more and more positions for fewer number of students. We've added hundreds, if not over a thousand positions in the past number of years with about 8,000 less students over the past decade. Everybody agrees that this system is unsustainable. The superintendent has said it. The CFO has said it. Every school committee member has said it. Everybody knows the system is unsustainable. We have massive, also massive number of vacancies in this system. So Mr. Cadet Hernandez is saying, you know, we may actually have a system that is not, we're not even able to fill with enough staff because it's so inefficient and there's just way too many schools, way too many classrooms, way too many positions. How will we deal with this going forward when the federal money goes away and when we reach a point where we have to make hard decisions? And, you know, there was a good point made by Chair Robinson on this issue. It just feels like, you know, there's a lot of promise, but not a lot of detail. So Josh, Chair Robinson is saying, look, you know, this is all nice. You know, we, we're, we're sort of saying everything is flush. We're going forward with these sort of doing all these things, but we really lack detail. We lack detail not only for next year, but we actually lack a lot of detail going forward for the future. So Ross, the budget was presented last night. Next week, a week from that presentation, is the final vote on the budget. And last night, we heard from a few members saying they have concerns about approving this budget with some of these outstanding questions. And Vice Chair Michael O'Neill made this comment about what happens if that budget isn't passed next week. If we do not pass a budget, and this is the chance for the superintendent to make a final recommendation, if we don't pass a budget, then the superintendent's original budget is the one that moves forward to city council. Ross, is that right? If the budget isn't passed next week, the superintendent's original proposal from February automatically goes to the city council? Josh, if the if the budget is not voted affirmatively, you go back to the school committee to essentially vote on the budget again. Eventually, the, the budget has to go to the city council in April. I believe it's the second week in April. If the city council votes no on the budget, the budget reverts back to this year's budget. It doesn't go back to the superintendent's original proposal. The ultimate authority on the budget, Josh, is the city council. The city council approves the budget. The school committee approves the budget and sends it to the city council for a vote. 
we always do this, Josh. We we basically start the budget process by saying, don't worry, we'll have plenty of input. We'll have plenty of time. We're going to do a great process. Everyone's going to have input. Everyone's going to, we're going to, this budget will change. Don't worry. Then we get right, we get to this point where we present the budget last night and we vote on it next week. And we say, if you don't vote on the budget, it will revert to the superintendent's original proposal and we won't include the collective bargaining increases and we won't be able to pay people. That's all, it is just um, causing fear, kind of pushing members to act quickly because they feel pressure to do so. But the reality, Josh, is we should pause for a second here and we should say, is this budget gonna create hundreds of layoffs going forward? Is this budget gonna create massive disruption going forward because we've way overinflated it and it's going to cause all of us really quite big challenges to try to move this budget to a much more reasonable size. And I think that's what members are saying. They say we can see this on the horizon. And we also know that you know there's all this conversation about facilities and this uh, green new deal or master facilities plan. There's been talk about this plan not coming available until next December, right? It, so that's too late to make decisions around budget. And so everyone knows that they're going to be in a really difficult position starting next year. And they want a three to five year plan. They want details. They want strategy. And they're not getting it. One big area of the budget year after year is transportation. There's a $12 million increase in this budget for transportation. The transportation system is now budgeted at over $150 million in the next year. And that was the second report of the night, not about the transportation system writ large but about one small piece of that, the contract with Transdev. Right, Josh. So this contract with Transdev, which is a management company. So let's let's just be clear, the scope of this contract. This is a management company that essentially will be paid about $3.5 million a year for five years. Just a reminder, Josh, the overall transportation budget is $153 million per year. And we're talking about a contract with Transdev for about 3.5 million. Right, but this is still something that's been incredibly controversial. It's been in the news week after week. First, because the transportation system itself is broken. It was part of the state improvement plan, mandated improvements on timeliness that the city still hasn't reached. And then the inspector general got involved because this bid for a new management contract got only one bidder, Transdev, the current management company. And so this is an issue that came up again last night. The superintendent and her team came out to justify why Transdev was the only bidder, and to explain why a new five-year contract with Transdev is the right path forward. Josh, a few weeks ago, we saw the report from the Council of Great City Schools, which pointed out all of the structural challenges for BPS transportation. We know that the structural challenges include lack of good programming close to home for families, lack of options for families close to home, particularly around special education and English language learners options close to home. It noted that our data systems are broken. We really don't know who's on the bus on any given day. BPS talked about that last night, about the lack of data available. We know that we have incredible inefficiencies with our transportation system and that how we route students is incredibly inefficient. So we know that there's all these structural problems with BPS transportation, as noted in the council report. We also heard from the state audit a few weeks ago in the data audit from the state saying BPS lacks the ability to actually have data on 
buses. And they said, in fact, there's almost a quarter of buses weren't reporting on-time performance. So BPS was reporting, claiming to report on-time performance for all these buses. But the reality is about a quarter of those buses were not reporting performance. And no, nobody knew that until DESE, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, pointed that out to the public. There's massive problems. And yet BPS comes back with the TransDev management contract and says, one of the solutions will be to keep the same management company we've had for a really long time, and we're going to add some performance incentives for them. And because of these incentives, we think we're going to get better performance. And that's the role of TransDev. TransDev's role is essentially a management company that oversees the drivers. That's what they do. So they oversee the bus yards and they oversee the drivers. And BPS somewhat basically manages everything else. They manage the routing, they manage the bus monitors, they manage the, the call center. BPS does all of that. So I gotta be clear, Josh, TransDev does not manage our entire transportation system. They just manage the drivers and the bus yards. And even the drivers are bound by their own contract, a separate agreement that was reached last year. And the bus yards host the BPS fleet, which BPS itself owns, TransDev doesn't. Correct. BPS owns all the buses. BPS owns the, the, the bus yards. So it's, it's just important to note the sliver that TransDev controls. And really, they don't control it, Josh. As we've mentioned in, a, in this podcast previously, the city basically reaches a, an agreement with the bus drivers contractually. They do so carefully through TransDev, but there are side letters of agreement that basically that were voted on by this committee that noted these drivers, this bus drivers union, will never be replaced by any contractor. So you're basically tying the hands of anybody, any vendor who wants to come in, and you're saying, we're going to hold you accountable for performance, but we're going to tie your hands behind your back because you can't do anything with the bus drivers of the bus drivers union. They will forever be in existence. And that was the crux of the justification for why a new five-year contract with TransDev. The... the district's explanation was essentially, our transportation system is so complicated, so unwieldy, so undesirable that nobody else wants to do it. They said there's four companies in the whole country capable of managing a system at this scale. And three of them walked away from the table and said they didn't want any part of it. Right. So we, we're left actually without any option other than TransDev or BPS taking over the bus drivers. I mean, BPS could just say, hey, look, we're not going to use a vendor anymore. We're going to take on TransDev's responsibilities. But instead, we're going we're to go ahead, move forward with a contract with TransDev for five years. The vote will be next week, Josh. So we'll see what happens. But uh, some important notes here. From every member, Josh, every, every member last night who spoke asked a really important question. And let's go through some of these questions. First, let's start off with Ms. Polanco Garcia. She asked the question in Spanish, and here's her interpreter. I would like to bring up which has been the company that has been contracted for many years. And I would like to know why of four companies that entered to the bid, three of them withdrew and only this company transfer state. So Josh, I think you covered that one. There was four other potential bidders and none of them won the contract and we're left essentially with Transit. So then Josh, the next question is from Mr. Cadet Hernandez. So like some of the complexity, like I feel is just like we've, where we make it, no one handed it to us in this sort of way. And like, what are we doing to change it? So we can have a much more simple system. <laughs> but then I'm also just sort of like open to the idea that like, this may not work. It hasn't worked before. And so like, I think 
it's fair to sort of wonder what if it doesn't work and then what are we willing to change as a system in order to make busing work that's not just rooted in this one relationship. Great point, Josh. Right? Great point. He's, he's sort of like, hey, uh, we keep on saying how complicated the system is and how complex the system is. We created it. We, the school committee, can control that. We can go back to these issues. We can try to make this a better system. Why don't we focus our energy on that? And then we had Vice Chair O'Neill ask a question. Do we believe we are at the point with our data to actually have real data that we can use to enforce the provisions that are in this, either paying transfer more or having a penalty back from them? Because that's reliant upon data. And I don't think we're at a point yet of believing our data. Ah, Josh, good point. Data. All if about the data. data system is broken and we actually don't really know what's happening, how do we hold somebody accountable for it? We're building accountability measures based on data that we don't have. Right. But there was an allusion to giving TransDev the responsibility to collect better data. So maybe that will work out. Maybe. And then, Ross, there was this question from Dr. Stephen Hawkins. You know, I would like to see us pick back up conversations with Lyft, if possible, to, to really think about like the alternatives that are there. I mean, because I think history has sort of told us that, you know, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop sort of with this conversation on transportation to some degree. But I, I, I have to say that, you know, I have, I've appreciated where we've gone with the contract in terms of vendor responsibility but I think we're still in that space where as a committee, we should be looking at newer and I don't, I don't, I don't want to say radical, but like, you know, very newer ways in which we can look at a problem that can offer us those alternative solutions when needed. Lyft, Ross. Whatever we, happened to Lyft? Lyft? We heard last year we were days away from a yeah. big announcement about Lyft. It was brought up a few weeks later. Again, we were told we're very close to a big announcement. Yep. Lyft. Yeah, this is going to be amazing. We, if your bus didn't show up, you could call a Lyft and a Lyft would take you to school. And there was a, you know, a lot of fanfare and creative solutions around this. And then radio silence. We haven't heard a word about Lyft. We did hear, Josh, though, if you're a family with a student with a disability and your bus doesn't show up, we did hear that you could become a vendor with the city of Boston. So you fill out this paperwork to become an official vendor. And then you can submit reimbursement for alternative transportation for your child to get to school that day. And I'll tell you, Josh, I've looked into this. It is not an easy process. And the reimbursement is actually quite low. It's like cents on the dollar for, for per mile for transportation. It is not an easy solution. Lyft seemed like it was going to be an easier solution. Well, and that's if your student is on an IEP. If your student's not on an IEP and the bus doesn't show up, good luck. Good luck. And the last question or statement we heard was from Chair Jerry Robinson. We are busing approximately 24,000 kids a day. So 5% of that is still 1,200 kids getting to school somewhere late. So I'm sure on the ground, if you're one of those 1,000 kids, or families with those thousand kids. It doesn't mean 95% doesn't make any difference to you if you're a part of the 5%. That's right. And so, you know, so hopefully, um, you know, as we both right-size the district and deal with some of the things that we, we've talked about, 89 different start times, things like that, that we have to work with our partners to come up with a plan so that we can get 99% of our kids 
and all of the various times, you know, to school on time. Chair Robinson is being very clear here that she is also concerned about the, the future of the transportation system. And I think what's really important here, Josh, is every time around this time of year, there's a conversation about re-upping the TransDev contract. So right around this time of year, there's a presentation that says, look, we should just re-up TransDev's contract because one, we have no other vendors to do it. And two, they've been working really hard to improve on-time performance. Same exact, we can go back and look at these year after year, same exact presentation. And in this presentation last night, we heard from the superintendent's team that TransDev has been working really hard and they may be getting up to like 95% on-time performance. Now, Josh, we know that our data systems are broken and so I don't trust that number, but Chair Robinson says very clearly, 5%, if you're at 95%, you should not be celebrating that. That is essentially, you know, about 1,200 kids a day not getting to school on time. 1,200 kids a day. Josh, the other day, you know, I, we heard last night from the executive director of transportation, Mr. Rosengard, that in fact, TransDev did a really good job during the storm. You know, at the same time, Josh, I heard from a number of families that their bus never showed up while their kids are waiting outside in the pouring rain and the crazy wind that we had. So, we got to be really careful about making celebrations and saying how well someone's doing when we have well over thousands of kids left on the street every day waiting for a bus. Well, and Ross, Chair Robinson here is also talking about the need to right-size the district, which was a consistent theme throughout the night last night. And it gets back to Mr. Cardet Hernandez's point. We have this incredibly complicated system. We have too many buses running. We have too many routes. We have buses with one or two kids that aren't running efficiently. And we're trying to say, TransDev will fix it. We'll build some incentives, we'll build some accountability, and that will solve the problem. But we really need to look at the whole picture. And this gets back to the division of responsibilities and the org chart that we talked about earlier. Yeah, Josh, I, I, I agree. This is a great example of where this org chart, operationalizing this org chart can come in to play. The superintendent spoke last night that there is no one issue that sits only with one department. But in fact, issues really transcend multiple departments and everyone has a little bit of responsibility for solving that issue. Wouldn't it have been wonderful last night, Josh, if we saw everybody, maybe every one of the 15 chiefs, each one of them probably owns a little bit of this transportation problem, right? Where the chief of special education, we need more programs to meet kids' needs closer to their homes. We need every school to be an inclusive school. We need to give options for families for inclusive education or special education programs close to their home. The same for language learners. We should have more programs in native language close to home. We should have more bilingual programs close to home. Everybody owns that. That's part of the transportation system. If we had that, we wouldn't be busing students so far away. We should really be thinking about like IT and data. Like where, where's our chief of accountability? Talk about the data systems and how we improve our data systems. or the Office of Technology, who says, look, we're going to get tablets on these buses and make sure we are tracking appropriately who's on the bus and who's not on the bus. These are just examples, Josh, where this is not just the transportation department. This is, in fact, implicates almost all of the other chiefs. And this is a great problem-solving opportunity for the superintendent to bring all the chiefs together and say, how are we all going to solve this transportation issue? Russ, what this presentation was about last night and what a lot of the presentations were about last night was BPS putting the cart before the horse. We had a budget presentation where BPS said, here's the budget for next year. We know there's going to be problems in future years, but you have to pass this by next week and we'll deal with those. Then we had a transportation presentation 
where BPS said, we have all these problems in transportation. We know we need to solve them, but let's pass this contract and then we'll deal with those problems. And then the third report of the night falls under that same theme. We had a report about the Massachusetts School Building Authority, the MSBA, and a request to merge two schools, despite the fact that this will be part of the larger Green New Deal process that's going on. So let's talk about that third report. This report was about merging the P.A. Shaw School, which we heard a lot about. I mean, we've been following the P.A. Shaw for a long time. It's a fantastic Um, school, a really dedicated parent community who's come to testify time after time at these meetings. And they've been effective. They've been able to keep their school open. They've actually added a grade, which they were wanted this year. We've heard from amazing staff members, amazing, really incredible students at the P.A. Shaw and incredible families. And so we, we heard last night that there's a proposal to build a new building to merge the Taylor and the P.A. Shaw into a new building. Very limited details. And this building would be built somewhere in 2030. The comment that stuck with me about this, there were a lot of questions, and we should get into this. But there was one question from Mr. Credit Hernandez about why a new building and what's going to happen to the two old buildings. What does the city have any sort of plan for what we would do with the existing buildings? And the response from BPS, I thought, was pretty telling. Their response was, we're currently going through an audit process of all our facilities. The results of that process will help inform what we do with these buildings. We'll be able to develop like a full comprehensive plan, strategic plan, like to to operationalize what comes out of the facilities condition assessment plan and the design study to figure out like, what are we doing? How are we using like all of the buildings, the empty buildings across the district? Naras, again, we're talking about the cart before the horse here. If that's the case, if there's an audit process happening right now, then why are we deciding before we have the results of that process that we need to shut down these two buildings and build a new facility? We have no idea. No, no idea. It's puzzling, Josh. It is puzzling. Now, members brought up some great questions last night, though. Not only that, about, okay, so tell us how this fits in. You know, we have, where will the new building go and what will we do with the P.A. Shaw and the Taylor? Nobody said the P.A. Shaw and the Taylor are terrible conditions. We actually have no idea because they're auditing those buildings now. So maybe we'll know in August or December how the conditions of those buildings and what we'd be using them for. We also don't know the number of school-age kids. Like, there's so many questions about why this now. But the biggest questions, Josh, were, what about the Horseman School for the Deaf? And what about the Blackstone School? So the Horseman School for the Deaf, for our listeners, is a school that has no building. They literally, they're building, they can no longer use their building. They're trying to prepare swing space for them, but they have no long-term home. And if I was a, a parent, a teacher, a community member of the Horseman School for the Deaf, I would say, wait a minute, why are you shifting your focus to two other schools merging when we have literally no place to go to school, right? And this is the same case with the Blackstone School, which came out multiple meetings ago and said, our building is really substandard and falling apart. We need a major renovation. Josh, both of those projects were bought to the MSBA, the Horace Mann School for the Deaf and the Blackstone were bought to the MSBA and declined. They were told, no, you cannot get MSBA money for these buildings. I would think that the school system in the city would go back to the MSBA for these schools, for our highest needs, the Horseman School for the Deaf and for the Blackstone, rather than just saying, oops, we can't do those. Let's choose another one. And Ross, there have been calls for years, for as long as we've been doing this podcast, 
there have been calls for a master facilities plan for one comprehensive vision of what schools need to close, what schools need to merge, what schools need to be renovated, and what new buildings need to be built. And finally, that's happening. Theoretically, that is the Green New Deal process. There's a task force, there are meetings. At the end of this year, they're meant to have a report. So why, when they've all come together, when the district is creating this process to create this comprehensive plan, why are we hearing these one-off projects, this request from the MSBA this month? Why are we hearing parents from the Sumner and the Philbrook come to testify that things are happening, things are moving without their insight? Why are we hearing parents at the Blackstone, parents at the Horace Mann are worried that they're not going to have a space next year? Wasn't this meant to be solved by this comprehensive planning process? Totally, Josh. This is, you know, to your point, uh, on every one of these presentations, we're putting the carpet before the horse. We're not slowing down and saying, what is the long-term implications? What's the long-term plan for this? Josh, what I think is happening here is that the district needs to get MSPA money. They, you know, it's part of the master facilities plan. They need to have pipelines of projects. The MSBA has a lot of money to pay for those projects. And they were declined twice. And now we're going after a third one just to get it in the pipeline. Now, Josh, a project that goes in the pipeline today won't be built until 2030. It's a seven-year lag. This is the concern. I think BPS is saying, we better accelerate this or else we're going to get nothing done. We got to move some projects into the pipeline. And that's maybe why the we're putting the cart before the horse. And that's what happened last night at school committee. Send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org, S-H-A-H foundation.org. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.